Well, it was back on uh, the first Sunday of the year that we started uh, a series in the book of Romans. That brings us this morning to Romans chapter 11. So I invite you to take out your Bibles and turn to Romans 11. And this is kind of a um, challenging passage, so more than ever, I invite you to take notes. There are some notes in your worship folder as well. And uh, follow along in your Bible as we get into God's Word. There was a guy in uh, Liberty, Iowa, who was going along and saw a farmer with a pretty big farm, and he had a, a huge tree where there had been a forest of trees, and he cut them all down so that he could plant uh, corn. <clears throat> and, but he was really curious why this one tree wasn't cut down. So he talked to the farmer, and the farmer said, you know, that one tree alone has been a real gift to our uh, to, to my work. And um, he said, I, I'm, I was very intentional in leaving that tree where it was. Because it can v- get very hot in Iowa in the summer, hot and humid. And so, um, and I, I needed to have a shade tree for my, for my livestock, for my family, as we're working in the fields to be able to have a place to, to go and be refreshed. So that tree was Left it was in sense a remnant. And you'll notice the title of today is the remnant of grace. That tree was a remnant of grace to that family. Uh, maybe there are times when you feel like it, you're all alone. And uh, whatever's going on, maybe you feel like you're the only Christian at your school or in your class or at work. Uh, the passage we're looking at today tells us that God always has a remnant of people, uh, a solid core of believers, maybe just one believer, but a group of believers who never waver in their trust in God's faithfulness, who serve the Lord, who persevere through difficulties. And what this <clears throat> passage really does is it challenges us to look at our own lives, to ask if we're rooted ourselves in God's truth. And ask if we're willing to take a stand for the Lord, even when it's unpopular. Uh, Being being part of the remnant definitely doesn't mean that we're superior to other people. Uh, It's about being faithful to a big God. We're to be like that lone, giant shade tree, if you will, that stands strong, even though we may be alone, and is an excellent example to provide grace to other people. So in Romans 11, Paul points out that not all Jews had rejected God's message of salvation. In fact, one of the greatest lessons of these verses, and this is on your outline if you're taking notes, is that God keeps his promises to us in spite of our failures. In Genesis chapter 12, God made a promise to Israel. God said, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and you will be a blessing and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That promise doesn't sound conditional. Sounds like a promise of God. But the Jews missed the Messiah. They missed Jesus who is the heart of the blessing. And all the Jews ended up being scattered everywhere. 
from their land. What it really came down to was this question that Paul was getting asked. If God failed to keep his promise to Israel, how do we know he's going to keep his promises to us? It's an important question. Romans 9 gave us the first part of the answer. Uh, Paul says that not every ethnic Jew is a spiritual Jew. And the second part of that answer comes in chapter 11, where Paul shows us that God does indeed fulfill the promises that he made to Abraham to bless Israel. And what's important to us here is that God uses Israel to give us a warning. And the warning is that if the Jews disqualified themselves through their unbelief, through their disobedience, then we need to be careful that doesn't happen to us. So has God failed to keep his promise to Israel to be a blessing to the nations? The first thing that we see in this passage is an answer to that. Number one is God's covenant faithfulness. Our God is a faithful God. And because we're taking a big chunk here of the text, nearly the entire chapter of chapter 11, we're going to read it as we go. So follow along in your Bible. Verse 1. I asked then, did God reject his people? By no means. And that's the strongest way that Paul has to say no. He's saying, if I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times, no, no, no. That's what he's saying. And and Paul's first proof is himself. Verse 1 continues, I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham and from the tribe of Benjamin. So if you remember back to Romans 8, uh, you've got the reference there in front of you. Paul gives us the assurance that ultimate victory belongs to the believer. It's unquestionably certain. And Paul was a living example that God had not rejected all the Jews. He was one man among a remnant. But he himself was proof that God was faithful to fulfill all of his promises. He is faithful to those he foreknew, it says back in Romans 8. So verse 2. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, says Elijah. And they're trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? He says, I have reserved myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, you can underline this next phrase in your Bible, there is a remnant chosen by grace. There is a remnant chosen by grace. I think Paul felt like Elijah. It was Elijah who stood up against King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, his evil wife. They persecuted anyone who did not worship their gods. Uh, And so Elijah cursed the land uh, to receive, uh, to not receive rain for three and a half years. And, And he did everything he could to humiliate Ahab and Jezebel. Not on purpose, but because he wanted to glorify God. And finally, Elijah calls for a showdown uh, and challenges all 850 of their priests, priests of Baal, uh, to a showdown on Mount Carmel. The false prophets were to build an an altar to Baal. 
and have Baal light it on fire. And they did this. They call down fire. They build an altar. Nothing happens. And so Elijah mocks him. And he says a lot of things. But one of the things he says is maybe your God is out taking a nap. Shout louder. Maybe you'll wake him up. Uh, He didn't win any friends in Ahab's palace. Let's just put it that way. Uh, Then Elijah prepared his altar. Uh, He had the sacrifice placed on the wood. And then he said, uh, I want to douse this wood with water. So he douses the wood with water. So there would be no question that when God put it on, set it on fire, that it would be God who did it. And Elijah prays and stands back and says this in 1 Kings 18. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice and the wood. And you know it was a hot fire because it also burned up the stones and the soil and licked up the water in the trench. That's a hot fire. And in the end, Elijah prays for rain and there's a torrential downpour. Well, when you humiliate an evil dictator and his evil queen, uh, like Ahab and Jezebel were, uh, you get what you'd expect. They threatened to kill Elijah. And Elijah did what any reasonable person would do. He ran uh, and hid And while he's hiding, Elijah prays this in 1 Kings 19. I have been very zealous for you, Lord, the Lord Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. Elijah was a remnant. The Lord said he would execute justice on the guilty And he uses Elijah to bring about a series of events in the ranks of Israel. But overall, there would be a remnant left of 7,000 faithful Hebrews. Elijah wasn't alone because God preserved this faithful minority. Uh, And it's the faithful remnant who are the true Israel. These are the ones who inherit God's promises to Abraham. Paul could have used a number of different examples about giving a, a being a remnant, but he chose this one. Why did he choose Elijah? Well, this is how he encourages Paul and us. So this is for us as well. You have this on your outline. Uh, the first thing he did was the Lord assured Elijah that the majority opinion doesn't determine Israel's future. God assures him that the majority doesn't speak, doesn't represent the true Israel. God says what matters is being you being faithful to God. Doesn't matter what anybody else is doing. You focus on what God wants you to do. What God has called you to. You focus on being faithful to God. Uh, and what God says to you, you, he says, forget about them, you serve me. And the second thing is the Lord gave Elijah work to do. We should all be asking that question. Lord, what work do you want me to do? What do you want me to do today for you? If, what would happen if we all asked that question every day? Lord, what, is there somebody that you want to use me to encourage? Is there somebody you want to use me to bless? Is there somebody that I can minister to for you? Whether it's at work or at, at, in your neighborhood or at, in your family. What's the work that God has you to do? The Lord would use the prophet Elijah to set in motion some events that would punish these evil leaders. And purify the land of Israel. And then finally, 
God would preserve a remnant of 7,000 Jews to carry his plan forward. Again, it goes back to God's faithfulness. You know, there are Jews today, uh, we have some in in our congregation who have uh, chosen, they're Jews ethnically, but they have chosen to follow Jesus. They recognize the Messiah, Jesus, as their king, as their rightful king. And I, I just looked it up because I was interested. There are over a million, it said, around a million uh, Messianic Jews, they call themselves Jews who believe in the Messiah Jesus, who are in the United States, and thousands more even in Israel today who meet in small groups and, and are worshiping the Lord. So in a sense, they are a remnant of the true Israel today. The greatest hope for Israel is also our greatest hope, and that is God, uh, the Father, who sent God the Son, the Messiah, uh, to forgive us our sins, to die for us on the cross, so that our sins can be forgiven. And that's the character of God. Look at verse 5. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. So in the same way that God chose a remnant uh, to preserve Israel in Elijah's day, those 7,000, he will choose a remnant of Jews to become the true Israel. His sovereign choice will be motivated by one thing and one thing alone, and that is his grace. Not by anything we do, not by anything any Jewish person does. The second part of the answer that the Apostle Paul gives uh, is in verse, starting in verse 7, and that's God's development of Israel's character. <clears throat> we know in chapter 8, this great promise that we have in Romans eight twenty eight, that God can use even the bad things that happen in your life for his glory, for his good, to make you to be like his son, Jesus. God uses all those things, and this is what he does with Israel. Whether Jew or Gentile, it's all about God's grace. And the blessings of salvation are the same. Uh, And there are others who become, some become hardened in their sin. But the one that that God foreknew, he brings to himself. Paul shows how God is consistent with his discipline. And he draws from Old Testament history to do this. So look at verse 7. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. And then this first quotation uh, in verse 8 is from Deuteronomy 29. It's a speech that Moses gave to Israel when they were about to enter into the promised land. After 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, he's speaking to the Jews and he says this, as it is written in verse eight, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. So when Israel's about to enter the promised land, you remember there were 12 spies who went in. Two of them came back and said, you need to trust God, let's go. 10 of them said, we need to turn and run. There are giants in the land. We should retreat immediately. And one way God used this time uh, before they finally entered the promised land was to grow their faith even more and to give to the Gentiles in the land the opportunity, although most of them didn't take it, to get on board with God's plan and what God was doing. 
Well, Paul's second Old Testament reference is in verse 9. It's part of the Messianic Psalm of Lament in Psalm 69. So verse 9 in Romans 11. And David said, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. So Paul wanted to remind the Roman, the Romans, the readers of this letter, that just like the period of, of discipline during the time of David that's being referred to in verse 9 and verse 10, it came to an end so, because the, the, the faithfulness of those who had been faithful were rewarded. And the same thing happened in Paul's day that prompts this rhetorical question in verse 11. Look at verse 11. And I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. Now, the Jews had not been permanently cast out. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying they have been temporarily set aside, just like the Lord did during the days of Moses and Joshua. God suspended his plan for Israel to allow for a period of grace for us so that we could come to know the Lord. Uh, God's long-suffering toward us, it says in 2 Peter 3, 9. Not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So the Jews haven't been permanently cast out. So Paul saw a double benefit, and this is on your outline in this arrangement. The first benefit, verses 12 and 13, is that it allows the Gentiles time to understand and then submit to God's plan. So look at verse 12. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? I'm talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry. So because the Jews rejected Jesus, this forced Paul, this was God's working, forced Paul to go to the Gentiles and preach the gospel. So in the book of Acts, we see this same pattern over and over again. What do they do? They go first to the synagogue where they preach the gospel in the synagogue. Some respond, some Jews respond, most do not. And so they leave the synagogue, and where do they go? They go into the streets, they go into the marketplace, and they're preaching on the streets to the Gentiles. And they find there are a lot of Gentiles who want to believe and who come to faith. And it didn't take long for Christianity to become a thriving, multi-ethnic movement made up primarily of non-Jews. The second benefit, verse 14, it made the Jews zealous for what they were missing. Verse 14, in the hope that I may somehow arouse my people to envy and save some of them. When Paul says he wants to arouse his people to envy to save some of them, think of it like this. Think of you going to your favorite restaurant with some friends because you want to show them what an amazing restaurant this is. But for some reason, just go with me here, you all forget your money. And they don't have Apple Pay, whatever. They just, you can't pay for the food. So you scrounge together the little cash you have and you come up with a lame children's meal. 
chicken fingers, whatever the children's meals are, and french fries, and you're eating this with your friends, and it's so embarrassing, and you, want, you know all the phenomenal food they have. Well, there's a group of people that come in and sit right next to you, and they have, they order everything you would want to order in this restaurant. It's all on one table. And you're looking jealously at this table and you go, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And so all the food is served and the host at that table, before anybody takes a bite, is lost his mind, it seems like. And he stands up and he says, I know we ordered all this food. I'm gonna pay for it, but you know what? We're gonna leave and go somewhere else. Everybody's shocked. Everyone at your table is shocked. And you're sitting there in shock and it's almost closing time. The owner comes and he closes the door. He locks it because it's closing time, and he invites you to join him at this table, and you all eat this unbelievable meal. Well, this guy who had walked away with his party, he stops in the middle of the street, and he goes, I don't know, I lost my mind, I don't know what I was thinking, let's go back and eat the meal. And they go back, but the door's locked, they can't get in. They can see inside, they see the window, they see you enjoying their meal. This is exactly what Paul wanted to see happen among the Jews. He wanted them to be jealous of the Gentiles who were eating this delectable meal that was set out for them, but they walked away from it. And that's that's what's happened here. So what Paul says, he hopes the Gentiles receiving the gospel would make the Jews feel this kind of feeling. He was hoping the Jews would long for this salvation. So if we continue with this example a little bit, let's say the group of people outside the restaurant say, you know what, we've got to do something about this. We've got to get some food. He wants them, Paul wants the Jews to seek out the salvation that they've left behind, that they walked away from. So on your outline, you have this. Paul had dedicated his life to preaching to the Gentiles, but he longed for his Jewish brothers and sisters to know the grace of God through faith in Jesus. That's what he wanted them to know. You remember he said earlier, last chapter, he said he'd give up his salvation, his own salvation, for the salvation of the Jewish people. That's how much he longed for it. And then finally, in chapter 11, we see the temporary hardening, number three, and the future restoration of Israel. So the Gentiles' passion for God finally will provoke Israel to come back to God at some point in the future. And that's going to lead to a massive worldwide movement among the Jews and the Gentiles. So what do we learn from this? Well, you know, it seemed like an impossible situation for Paul. And maybe at some point, you are facing an impossible situation in your life. What looks like there are no good options. And like Paul did, he looks at the position of the Jews, something that looks hopeless. And maybe you are saying about the situation you're in, where did I go wrong? What did I do to deserve this? And maybe the answer is nothing Maybe God wants to use it to glorify himself in an even greater way through your life. Maybe he wants just to bless you. And God still desires today to accomplish his will through a faithful remnant. That's you. That's me. That's us. 
We know that there are a lot of people today who don't follow the Lord and who have seemingly no interest in it. Just know that God is at work in people's lives. And God still desires to accomplish his will through a remnant of grace. Verse 15, for if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? It's like a resurrection. And you know what? Our God specializes in resurrections. He specializes in taking situations that look completely hopeless and dead and bringing life to those situations. The Jews as a religious group were like a family who lost a member of their family in a car accident. And yes, God uses that. He will always use that to to bring life and, and build people up. But when it all is said and done, they want their family member back. They'd much rather have their family member. Paul wants to, to see, he, he wants to see Jews not remain spiritually dead, but come to faith in the Messiah Jesus. And that's what Paul had said earlier, that he'd give his own salvation up. So verses 16 to 18 is when Israel first entered the promised land, the Lord taught them to give of the first fruits. And what this meant was that after working hard, And after waiting for the crop to come, the very first sign of produce usually was a good indication of how the rest of the crop would be. And to give the first fruit to the Lord was to say to God, by giving you this fruit, uh, we acknowledge that it's from you. We acknowledge that we want you to use all of it for your glory. We want you to use us for your glory. Uh, However good, however bad this crop is, they committed it to the Lord and they committed themselves to the Lord. That was what the giving of the first fruits meant. And so everything that followed belonged to the Lord. It was dedicated to him. And the same was true to the dough. Look at verse 16. If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. So Keep following here where we're going. So even in the Old Testament times, wild olive shoots, you know, you think of grafting a branch into a tree today. We think, ah, you know, that's pretty cool. When did they do that? They did that in the Old Testament times. That's not something new. They did it in the New Testament times, of course, if they did it in the Old Testament times. So even in the Old Testament times, wild olive shoots were grafted into cultivated trees to make them stronger to give them a new life. The the Gentiles had been grafted into the people of God, contrary to nature, so to speak. We're not part of that tree that came from the root of David, the root of Jesse, it grew up. That's the tree of salvation. We were grafted in as Gentiles. So uh, verse 17 says it like this. If some of the branches have been broken off, the Jews, talking about the Jews, and you, Gentiles, though a wild olive shoot have been grafted in among the others, now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root. So how are we getting our nourishment? From God. It's not about us, it's about God. In other words, because your salvation is entirely by grace, there's nothing for us to brag about. We, can't, we don't have anything to brag about. Isn't that what Paul says to the Ephesians? 
He says this in, in, one, in one paraphrase. It says, saving is all God's idea. It's all his work. All we do is trust him enough to let him do it. It's God's gift from start to finish. We don't play the major role. If we did, we'd probably go around bragging that we'd done the whole thing. That's our salvation. It's all from God. It says, the, the passage continues, no, we neither make nor save ourselves. God does both the making and the saving. So verse 19, follow along in your Bibles. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. And Paul's saying this is what happened to the Gentiles. The Jewish branches, so to speak, were broken off so that the Gentiles could be grafted in. It's all part of God's plan. This is what he's doing. So look, we're gonna skip to verse 21. This is the, the warning here. Right here it is, verse 21. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either if you do the same things they did. So in other words, if God is able to cut off the branches of his own tree, salvation tree, if you will, why would he treat those who've been grafted in any differently? We've been grafted in, remember, somewhat unnaturally because we're not from the same roots. Why would we think we can ever get away with what got them cut off. So what was it that got them, what got Israel removed? Well, it was unbelief. It, it was compromise. It was disobedience. It was taking the relationship with God for granted. It was giving lip service to God, but just going through religious motions and forgetting about our heart relationship with God without ever really giving their lives to Jesus ultimately. So here's the danger for us. So, so many Christians are sitting in churches and they're saying, you know what, uh, I'm a Christian. And you know how I know I'm a Christian? I'm a Christian because I prayed a prayer. I said the words. It doesn't matter what I believe in my heart. I said the words. I went through confirmation. I was baptized. Uh, I, I attend church regularly and I do stuff to help out. And they think they're a part of the salvation tree when they are not a part of the salvation tree. They're only half committed, which means they're not committed at all. And if you look at their lifestyle, there's a lot of inconsistencies. There's a lot of compromising that's going on. They're not really walking with Jesus. They're not really living for him as Lord and wanting him to be Lord of every area of their lives. Those were the things that got Israel removed from God's tree of salvation. And Paul is saying that the same thing to the Jews and the Gentiles. Wake up. Wake up. If this is what God can do to the sons and daughters of Abraham, why would we think he couldn't do that to us? So if we fail to believe and obey, we're, are we really so foolish and so proud to think that God will treat us any differently when we treat him with contempt? When we treat him flippantly? So let me say this here, that I think sometimes Christians use a perverted doctrine of eternal security to assure themselves that they belong to God when the reality is they don't belong to him. The doctrine of eternal security says once saved, 
always saved. And that is true. This is, in other words, once you're truly saved, you can never lose your salvation. When people come to know Christ as their savior, they are brought into a relationship with God that guarantees their salvation is eternally secure. Salvation is the sovereign act of God whereby a person who does not know God, who is spiritually dead, is cleansed and transformed and born again by the Spirit of God, by the Holy Spirit. You look at Titus 3.5, that's what Titus 3.5 says. And in Romans 8, that we looked at a, a few weeks ago, Romans 8, 29 and 30, says this, for, the, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now get this right here, verse 30. There is an unbroken chain. And those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. You get that? The only way you know Jesus is if it says here, right here, those he predestined. And 100% of those he predestined, he also called. And 100% of those he called, he also justified. And 100% of those he justified, he also glorified. And so we can rest in the assurance of God's word, not our own feelings that our salvation is secure forever. Once saved, always saved. Look at verse 22. There's something else to consider here. Consider therefore the kindness and the sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will be cut off. So to persevere in the faith means that we keep depending on Jesus. Continuing in the faith is proof of the reality of our faith. And so verses 23 and 24. And if they do not persist in their unbelief, talking about the Jews, they will be grafted back in for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut off uh, out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature, were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? So we become a part of God's tree by faith, by grace through faith in Christ. And so the Gentiles are, in a sense, like orphans, We are like orphans adopted into God's family by grace. A Jew who comes to genuine faith is like he's coming home. And as hard as it may be for us to understand, God's treatment of the Jews and the Gentiles is intended to remind us of his mercy and of his grace. So starting in verse 25, uh, Paul says there's room for both the Jew and the Gentile. Look at verse 25. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. So God's not surprised by Israel's hardening. He alone knows the full number of Gentiles. We don't know that, but God does. And so God chooses them. And then verse, verse 26 and 27, and in this way, 
All Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will turn godlessness away from Jacob. So God chose Israel and and never rejected it. God chose the nation of Israel. He never rejected the nation of Israel. And God chose the church through Jesus and he has never and will never reject the church either. When Paul says all Israel will be saved in verse 26, he explains it in verse 27. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This does not mean that, listen carefully. This does not mean that every ethnic Jew will be saved. That's not what this passage is saying. And it doesn't mean that all church members will be saved either. It's possible to belong to a nation like Israel or a group like the church and never respond in faith. And that's why Paul is saying, wake up. You have to respond in faith. And just because some people have rejected Christ does not mean that God stops working with either Israel or with the church. So now look at verse 20. We skip verse 20. I want to go back to verse 20. But they were broken off because of unbelief and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. You will be kept if you avoid the unbelief of Israel. You will stand firm. If you stand firm to the end, you will be saved. So wait a second. How can these both be true? Once saved, always saved. And if you persevere to the end, and only if you persevere to the end, you will be saved. How do those go together? Verse 23. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. Jesus said this in Matthew 24. He said, the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And that's in contrast to the verse right before that in Matthew 24, 12. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. So that does not mean one who stands firm to the end will be saved. It does not mean that somehow is dependent on our personal ability to remain saved. Do you hear that again? It doesn't depend on our personal ability to remain saved. If I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times. No, it's not what it means. It is a promise. What it does mean, it's a promise of perseverance. It does mean that those who have the grace to endure to the end are the ones who are genuinely saved by grace. So you, I, I know what you're thinking. You think, well, what about my friend who's fallen away? I know he was a Christian. He, was, he li- was living the Christian life. Well, either he will come back to the Lord uh, because if he knows the grace of God, he will persist. He will be saved by grace. He will persevere to the end. When, whenever you have what looks like two contradictory truths in, in the Bible, you have to put them together. So here's what this looks like. It's true, once saved, always saved. But it's also true that once saved, you you will forever be following because the grace and the keeping power of God, because of that, nothing else, because of his grace and his keeping power. That's what makes us persevere to the end. So Paul says, 
what we can do is be diligent to maintain the walk of faith. We've been talking as men about the habits of grace. We do the habits of grace. We practice those habits. We walk by faith. We don't give up. We, we persist. We go back to it. We endure to the end. And those who don't endure to the end don't really know God. You know, I'll tell you what, it's heartbreaking to me sometimes. I've had people come to me and instead of wanting to dive into the middle, to dive deeper into their relationship with God, it's like they're playing on the outside. They're seeing how much sin can I get away with and still be a Christian and still love Jesus? That's not the question to be asking. And it's heartbreaking when people come to me and say that because what we should be asking is what do I need to do to worship God more in my life? And so what that leads us to is, is, and this is a question I've asked some of them, are you playing games with God? Don't play games with God. God wants you, he loves you, but he is God. And we need to worship him and love him with all of our hearts. That should be our response to God. What's your response to the Lord? Do you know him? If you don't know him, I beg you, to make him, receive him today as your Lord and Savior and in purpose to live your life in obedience to him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God of covenant faithfulness. We pray, Lord, that you would build our character to be like Jesus. As we feel sometimes like a remnant, we pray that you would keep us strong. It's your keeping power that keeps us strong in our faith. Thank you, Father, that we have the assurance that we, our salvation is forever, that those who are predestined will all be glorified. And we thank you that you are, that we can persevere by the keeping power of God. We all need Jesus, and if there's someone here this morning who has never Receive Jesus personally. May this be the morning they do. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So, um, and this is my prayer for you right now from the end of Romans chapter 15. Uh, it says, I pray, I pray, this is my prayer for you. I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with his joy and his peace. Because you trust in him, then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. God bless you and thank you for being here. And please don't leave without introducing yourself to someone uh, who's here, crew people. Meet someone that doesn't, is not a part of crew. You folks, meet someone who's a uh, part of crew. All right, God bless. Have a great day. <laughs>